Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today uh, we have Robert Green here. Robert Green's in our community, and he's also an EVS operator, a tape operator, video editor, and he's worked in broadcast for nearly three decades. And we're really excited to have him uh, to talk about all those things. And so um, so anyway, it's going to be a great second hour. If you've got questions about playback and EVS and, and broadcasting, in general at a very high level. Uh, go ahead and throw those questions in for the second hour. Uh, if you've got general questions, throw them in for the first hour in Makana. You can vote those questions up and chat about them if you want, if you're in Makana. If you're not in Makana, you can go to simply go to askofficehours.global. That's askofficehours.global and you can ask those questions any time of the day. So it doesn't have to be, uh, you can do it now and we'll put them in, but uh, you can also ask them yesterday or tomorrow. You can't ask them yesterday anymore because it's yesterday. But 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 during the day, this could be the new yesterday for tomorrow. I just remember that every day is yesterday for tomorrow. That's I, I that's that's your philosophical moment. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. Uh, first up, Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana. Tomorrow is a look behind the curtains of Oz. But what are some of the personal improvements or favorite upgrades you have done or hope to do to your per- panelist systems? Bonus question, who plays the wizard? Um, I'm trying to think of the, I think that the thing that, I don't know, I feel like each piece is their own, you know, their own little great little piece of things. I think that, you know, improving the camera has helped, um, I think over time, uh, moving to Sony, as Mitchell will often remind, remind us, uh, was, was easier because there was this point where what happened was I shortened the depth of field, um, on my, I really wanted a short depth of field with my camera when I moved, when I flipped my sweat, my set. And when I did that, I found that I was out of focus a lot <laughs> because, and so I was constantly rocking back and forth, uh, trying to find focus uh, for about six months until I, until I moved to something that, that made a big difference. Um, and then I, I guess the only other thing I would say is my ATEM uh, that I, that I used a lot. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I moved from my Logitech uh, 920 to the uh, Canon M50 Mark II, which helped a lot, except when I'm wearing something I should never be wearing, this moray type check. (laughs) (laughs) In the small one, my shirt's alive. Uh, But also, I've changed my mixer a couple of times. Uh, I've gone from the Mix Pre to the Samson MX-124 to the Rodecaster Pro. So I have transitioned a bit, and I've stuck with the Stellar X2 uh, after going through a variety of different, uh, you know, microphones, including, you know, Sennheiser's, Shep's, and a variety. Yeah, I think that I I settled on Courtney's. You see what I see? I, I got the Sony idea from from Mitch. I got the, the mic idea from Courtney. I, I'm just slowly learning from everybody else here. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it's good to follow uh, Maury uh, Good in there. Uh, yeah, I would say mine is more of what I'm looking forward to do uh, to improve things. Uh, I haven't made many changes, but I'm looking forward to a mix pre, hint, hint, uh, so that I can improve my audio quality. I've got a little bit of background noise because this is my edit suite also, so I've got fans galore in here. So I would say that's it. And the only other thing I've done to upgrade is I've moved my mic closer to me so that I can get a little less background sound. Next question. Next one from Pedro G. Gonzalez in Oklahoma City. Office hours, lighting, and camera setups look fantastic. YouTube live streams looks a bit lacking. Will boosting the bit rate by another 10 megabits per second help the stream to look better, or is there a limit to streaming quality that YouTube or Zoom imposes? 4K? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we are looking at 4K and HDR to move things forward. And so um, we're, we're a little bit in a between state because we had to move out of the space that we were in. I toured a really good space yesterday. We'll see how that goes. Um, but uh, the um, uh, so I think that I, I, I don't know what our I actually don't know what our bit rate is right now to, to YouTube because it's in a different space than, than what we've had in the past. Uh, I don't think that's the I think the limitation is probably still just WebRTC. I mean, we're doing something in real time. Uh, or, or you know, what Zoom's version of that. Um, so I, I don't think that I don't think that we're getting much lower quality based on our stream to YouTube. Um, that's my opinion, um, but I don't I don't know that for sure. Go ahead, Mitch. Do you think there's anything in the Zoom uh, crystal ball or YouTube crystal ball that uh, will improve the quality of their playback? I mean, it's a you know it's a target. Maybe they can get better. Well, it's, it's, it's us looking. I mean, I think Zoom's always making it better, um, but there's a limit to what you can do in real time. I mean, I think that that's the real, the real issue that um, – uh, oh, yeah. And so Mickey said that the current bit rate of the encoders to YouTube is 10 megabits a second. For the kind of show that we do, that's plenty. So there's not – we're not getting anything. We're not going to get anything by making it more. Um, when you want to define what the quality on YouTube is, you, you should look at – the quality of the graphics. Are the graphics sharp? Are they clear? Are, are they good color? I think you're going to find that they probably are. Um, I don't think that, I think that our video is doing the best it can. And again, we're making a decision about um, doing it in real time. Uh, we are working on some solutions for next year that might not be in, that mix what we're doing now with with uh, SRT and other things to where we could, you know, potentially dramatically change the quality, you know, improve the quality of the show. Uh, but it'll take more work on the panelist view. We want to make sure that we continue to be open to panelists just joining. Um, what I'm talking about there is a pretty complicated kit <laughs> you know, that you might have to have. And we want to make sure that if we, we're going to test it next year, if we're going to implement it, we would really have to know how we're going to support panelists to do that. Um, so so we're, we're, we're kind of trying to figure that that out. Um, so I think that the limitation really is just uh, the, how we get this back and forth between Zoom. I think we've, t we've pushed Zoom about as far as it can go. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as quality goes between our, our setups and, you know, how the process works. Um, and, but I think that there is a limitation. You make a choice that we want to be talking at 200 milliseconds back and forth, and there's a limit to how good. And I think Zoom is at the top level of what you can do at 200 milliseconds of latency. <laughs> you know, so, so uh, you know, I think that's the, that's the bottom line there. Uh, next question. From Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida, Andy asks, has anyone visited the light art installations in San Francisco? The light, uh, go ahead, Courtney. I haven't yet, but apparently it's in Golden Gate Park. And if you look at their, uh, sorry, uh, stuck halfway. Uh, if you look at their website, their website could have been betterly designed. It looks like it's got all types Is of... Is betterly a word? Betterly. Are we, are, are we betterly, creating that? I just betterly. created that word. I, I'm betterly I, designed. I, 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 I kind of like it. I, 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 you know, I know I don't like to be defined by dictionaries. So I, I yeah, think they that, have to, their their images pop a little bit as you scroll up. I don't know why. Oh yeah. Uh, but anyway, they have all these uh, LED installations. There's a lot you can do, and there's a lot of projection mapping in there too. It looks like they've got projection mapped on some of the buildings there, in the psychedelic photosynthesis. And uh, now they're just daring people. This is San Francisco after all. And, yeah, you know, so yes. you do have to do some type of illicit drug, I think, to enjoy this the best. But uh, I won't <laughs> mention that. So, There's different yeah. artists. Different artists have taken over different buildings and do these different art presentations. How long does it say how long it's going to be there? Uh, through uh, before December 15th. I think it runs through December uh, 15th. Okay. 
And there's some projection mapping on there. Like nice little flow chart on someone's side of someone's office building. <laughs> nice, nice. It looks, it looks, it looks great. I love a lot of those things. And so I, I, the one of the best ones around this time of year is in Japan near, just north of Rapungi. I can't think of the name of that area there, but there's this huge open area. And as you might guess, the Japanese take it to an entirely different level of of art, of light art, and so on and so forth. We'll see if we can find some photos of that. Um, but this this one looks great. I'm definitely trying to check it out before it goes away. Next question. Michael Patria from Poland asks, can I remote control Blackmagic Studio Camera G2 via Blackmagic Decklink 4K Extreme 12G? If not, what is the best solution to control, record, and mix with these cameras? Um, extreme. You should be able to do that. Uh, deck, well, I don't know about Decklink. You, 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 need, you need to, to remote control it. You need a switcher. So you need you need to be connected to a switcher that you know that's sending a return signal back um, to. Now, technically, I think you could have to go into the deck link and then go out to the switcher, but I don't think there's any software way. Um, there's no there's no there's no software solution that I know of that's going to allow you to shade the cameras through the deck link uh, return. Um, so that's not it's really built. Those cameras are built to be controlled, but they're built to be controlled by the the switcher itself. Um, there may be an option uh, related to. Um, bridge, but it's still going to require a switcher somewhere in there to do the controls. Uh, there is a full SDK. We've been looking at it um, that can allow, I think these are the new the new cameras that theoretically people could build stuff for it. Um, and I think folks in our community have been experimenting with that, but I don't think anything has been, is out in the open right now. Uh, next question. Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York, caught a bit of NBC's Christmas in Graceland. Production value looked quite high with a couple of great sets and camera shots. Anyone else had any thoughts? I haven't seen it. I'm not a, I have to admit, I'm, I'm not a big Christmas um, content person. Like I, you know, I, I uh, um, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. I, I was going to say, I haven't seen it other, however, I have seen another special that Apple is promoting uh, it's the lady, uh, Miss Waddington, Hannah, from, Hannah, uh, Hannah Waddington. Ted, from Ted Lasso. And that looks like it's got awesome production value. So <laughs> it looks like they might've spent all the money on that one. <laughs> they did. I think Apple reached <laughs> yeah. deep into those pockets for that. I think Apple reaches deep into all their pockets for all of their content. I mean, there are times when I look at Apple event, like I look at Apple shows and it, regardless of the quality of the show, I just go, wow, do they spend a lot of money on that scene? Like it was just, you know, like it just as a, as a person who works on these things, you just look at it and you're just kind of awestruck on, on how much, you know, quality. I mean, there's just a certain sheen to it that you're just like that someone at some point said, well, we could do that, but we might we might reduce the quality of the of the look or whatever. And they're like, oh, let's go find yeah, a it's, million, it's million tangible. dollars. You know, it's, it literally is tangible, yeah, like you say. It's, it's an it's an amazing thing. It's really fun to watch, um, you know. And I think that I think that we're. I, I do think that Apple is kind of winning this process in the sense that they really focused on less content. They're spending less money. So what's what's interesting is they are actually spending less money than Netflix by a lot. Like they're spending one tenth or less of what Netflix is is spending on theirs. And but what they decided to do is, hey, we're not going to spend. We're not going to. Um, spend so much we're not gonna do so many things we're gonna do the things that we do really well which is a very apple approach to the process so so anyway so i think that that's that's turning out to be um you know fairly effective yeah go ahead mitchell and if you have any question about the money that apple spends uh, look at the new monarch series uh that's based on godzilla and all those guys uh it's awesome and 
pixel perfect in everything they do. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, next question. Next question for Vic Hernandez in Springfield, Missouri. Pardon me? No, go ahead, Courtney. Before we get jump into it, go, go, yeah, ahead, go ahead, I was just going to say, if you had any question about where they get all that money, it's uh, look at the price of those Apple products for you. It's such a great <laughs> model. <laughs> it's it's such a it's a it's a it's, it's a Kaiser Soze model. You always spend more money than the job is worth, and and so they they can do that. Which is, again, I mean, to, th- there's going to be a, uh, um, you know, I think that the it's going to be really hard. Netflix has, you know, they they have they are the the, the you know twenty ton gorilla, or whatever. They have the most subscribers. But Am- Apple and Amazon, we've talked about it a couple of times, don't need to make money on their product. Like they have other products that this is connected to. And all they got to do is add value to the product that they already have. That makes the hill for everyone else extremely steep. <laughs> like, like it is just really hard to compete with those three. I think that those three are the leaders. Um, I think Disney's, you know, as we've seen in many articles right now, are in, in, is deep in soul searching about why they can't seem to turn a profit on many things quickly. Um, you know, they're, they're just, they're getting kind of bled out right now. So we'll see how that, we'll, we'll see if they, if they can turn that corner. HBO Max took away things that, that they own. Like I, like I found that to be incredibly confusing as a user. Like I was like, oh, this was on HBO. I know that I can go see it. Taking away the things that you actually made yourself. It's one thing when Netflix takes away things that they contracted for. It's another thing when they take away the things that they actually owned. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, has anybody noticed movies that you purchased from Apple disappearing from your library or am I imagining it? One disappeared. What was it? Uh, The Christmas version of Deadpool. (laughs) (laughs) It was 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 what they did. What? It was was purchased. I paid for it. And, and it disappeared, and I'm still bitter about it. Uh, obviously, because I came right to right to the top of my mind. So what it was, it was Deadpool without all the swear words. It was like the kids' version of Deadpool. Um, oh, funny. And it was they made it. I think they made it to be more more accessible and everything else. And I'm sure that somebody internally, because I thought it was great. It, it felt like I could watch it around somebody it else, and, the like around version. the kids. Sorry, the, it was air- like the airline version. What yeah, about exactly. the uh, the infamous uh, Star Wars uh, uh, Christmas? Yeah, but, but yeah, but those That's are those are not there. I mean, no one wants that one to be back. But but the but I'm talking talking about movies that like I paid for that movie, and then it just this it's just not there anymore. And I yeah, there's a handful of times where I've thought, oh yeah, I want to go check out that movie, and I go to look for it. I was like, I. And and here's the thing, I'm not a hundred percent certain I, I purchased it, but I'm really kind of certain I purchased it, and I, it just disappears. I wonder about that too. There are definitely times when I go, I feel like I bought this already. Like I don't, right? Because I have I bought a lot of movies. I have like 600 movies in there. So I so I like I I go I uh, I feel like I bought this before. You know, like and and there's ones that, but you know, the ones that I definitely know that I bought are there. I mean, I, I scroll through them to find, find the stuff and I don't see the number going up and down. So I, I'm, I'm confused by it too. Um, there's so many. Okay, so and there's, the problem is there's I so many services. I, I don't, crazy. there's so many services now. I don't really know where I watched it. Like that's the problem is that I, that's a possibility. Um, you know, but I do say when I buy the stuff from Apple, I buy it because of, of the extras. Like I, I don't buy, like otherwise I'll just wait for it to show up on a service. Like I just, I'll just wait until it shows up somewhere else. So the extras are the only reason that I buy stuff, what, you know, because I want to, you know, go through it all. The problem with finding it on a service is in 12 months, 12 years, when you want to watch it again, it may not be available on a service. So then yeah, you're going to end up well, going to well, buy it anyway. 
what happens is, is that I'd rather not pay for it if I'm only going to watch it once. Although I will say that, you know, I used to go to the movies every week. And now I go to the movies three times a year. Like it's like, you know, two or three times a year. Um, you know, and I go to, you know, I go, I go to an IMAX and I watch something that belongs on IMAX, you know, and, um, and then I, um, and the, but there's nothing else I'm going to watch. I'm not going to watch anything that doesn't feel like, like I watched Avatar and Mission Impossible and almost Oppenheimer. <laughs> I almost went to Oppenheimer uh, in, in IMAX. I, it was, it was just a conflict of time. I, I'd gotten the tickets. Yeah, I find ahead. that as I get older, I watch way less movies, but I tend to watch them th- two or three, maybe four times. Only like four I, times? I, sometimes, yeah. If it's, if it's, if I... In- no, you gotta get, I, I don't watch the whole movie. So here's the, here's the funny thing is... Uh, I know, you skip through the first I skip the first, first act. Like, get, get, get that out of the way. We already know that. And then, and then you just jump right in. You go, if you're somewhere between 39 minutes and a 50 minutes on an average movie, it's, it, the, that's the transition unless between first and second act. What? Unless it's, unless it's I know what happened in Oppenheimer. It's like general chaos. Talk about, anyway, the... the Can we do a second hour on Oppenheimer? I, I, we could, I, I, I no just, spoilers, please. Yeah, no, there's just some choices that they made there. That, they make a bomb, I, Mitch. It turns out we, we bombed Nagasaki and Hiroshima with it. It was horrible. Like it was, you know, like, but, but I'm, I'm sorry, I ruined it for everyone. Like it's, it's they're going to turn down. The boat sinks, Titanic. Yeah, yeah. But the, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. They made some decisions that I think probably cost them, my guess is about $200 million, $200 million decisions, um, mostly around, uh, clothing or the lack thereof um, means that you they 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 destroyed their uh, like they destroyed the distribution possibilities of that movie. <laughs> like, you know, for no you reason. Seemed well, bitter, you seemed bitter the day after you watched it about the no special effects comment. Would you well, would you mind elaborating on that? There this is what happens, by the way, if you're a producer and you're watching and we look up and we only have six questions. This is what happens. We just kind of mo- mosey on along. If you're wondering, why are they talking about this so much? I'm like, because we got time. So um, so the uh, uh, you gave us time and we're going to take it. Um, so anyway, so the um, uh, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that they, there's all of these have lots of effects. And so when anytime, you know, they hundreds and hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of visual effects and. A lot of them are, maybe they're not, you know, putting in 3D, whatever, but, you know, most movies like the one that we saw probably have some set extensions and definitely have a lot of roto. Um, And so there's stuff being done to these things all the time. Um, Usually what I think is when people say they they didn't do any work on the, they didn't do any effects, it means they spent enough money so you can't see it. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's not, you know, like, like they, you know, they, because that's what, what we're really seeing is when, you know, we thought that, you know, Jurassic Park was an enormous lift at 120 visual effects shots when we, when we did that, you know, um, uh, then, you know, Star Wars, I think was, uh, I think the episode one that I worked on, I think was, I want to say 2200 visual effects shots or something like that. Um, and so, uh, when you do that many visual effects shots, they can't all be good, <laughs> you know? And so even, you know, and so I even have a shot that I worked on that I, every time I see it, I go, ah! I need one more round on that one. And and so um so the uh I think that that's the challenge for a lot of these a lot of these movies. But the problem, my problem ahead. with Oppenheimer is I went and saw it in uh IMAX 15 perf, which yeah. is very hard to do since there's only 13 theaters left in the world. No, no, and there's there's more than 13 that. in America. In the United States, yeah. Yeah. And well, that's my rest of my world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but uh, there's one in your town. It, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter how many there are. There's one in your town. <laughs> there's ninety percent, ninety nine, ninety eight percent of that movie is kind of 
head and shoulders close-ups or it takes place in dingy little rooms. You know, you've got this marvelous, expansive, you know, you want to see Lawrence of Arabia or something yeah. in, in 15 millimeter. And on a huge IMAX screen, you know, you're looking at the inside of a dingy little room for 90% of the interrogation scenes. It's like, boom. Ah. When they when they when they show it to you though, boom! That's all I'm saying. It's it's uh, literally in this case. The, the you know the I do think that the the hard part is is that the challenge for theaters is when they up the ante a little bit and they really sell that. It makes it hard. It, I, I think it actually makes it harder to get people to go to the films in general. Like so, for instance, I wanted to go see Oppenheimer. It's supposed to, uh, you know um, I almost went when it did a re. I couldn't get in when it first started because it was a re-release. Then I wanted to go see it. I mean, on the re-release, I, I went to see it. Went to see it. It was a conflict in my schedule, but I was only willing to see the fifteen seventy. <laughs> like, like I was like, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to pay to watch a you know to go in some small theater or to even see a digital version in IMAX. I was like, no. So so I you know so I was like, I'm only if the fifteen seventy exists, I'm not it's paying 1570? for anything. Fifteen seventy is seventy millimeter, fifteen perf. And so what happens is, and is film that film projection. Yeah, it's a film projection. And what happens is, is that the normally um, the uh, out comes the telestrator. Yes, um, I took parts of the part. Way, so when, when I, I scribbled, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. So anyway, say, when you guys ask questions, you get the show that you want. When you don't ask questions, well, you get the you show, get the we show want. that we want. We want. <laughs> so the the um, so normally uh, seventy millimeter film, of course, you know, you have you know this, you know, oops, the perf. The perfs are how many perfs here, right? And normally with a 70 millimeter film, it looks like this. You know, it's like IMAX in its uh, infinite wisdom figured out, oh, you know what we could do? We could turn it sideways. And so they turned it sideways. So the, the IMAX frame is turned so that you get 15. It's 70 millimeter, but it's all, it's, so it's a 70 millimeter process, but it's turned on its side and that makes it a 15 perf. So it's, that's why it's so large. It's, it's, it's a much larger... Uh, frame because it's 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 on its side anyway so um so anyway that's the and so you have this enormous it, the, i think that the number that you see floating around is equivalent to 18k uh, um uh yeah um and an 18k image is the is what people say is the and the only camera that we know of that's a digital that is close to that is the sphere camera this, that just came out like that's the only digital camera that we know that can shoot video at something that's close to IMAX's, um, the, the, you know, the effective film resolution. Anyway, and when you talk to people who have seen the 15 perf, I don't know what Courtney thinks of the 15 perf, but it's better. <laughs> it's, it's sharper. It's bigger. You know, like, and so, um, and so the, uh, especially on a big screen, wouldn't matter if it was a small screen. But I think, I, I hope, you know, that IMAX expands that, you know, because I, I think that we have reached peak movies. Like, we're not going to, like it's all downhill from here. Well, the, digi <laughs> like, the digital you know, IMAX so. is is dual 4K projectors is what they've gone Some, to. Yeah, yeah, on yeah the, um, one on top of the other one you know, for brightness. Just, yeah, yeah, and, and they're offset by a half a pixel or something to increase yeah, yeah. resolution. Yeah, the um, uh, but the but I, I think that we've reached you know peak film. You know, so you have to figure out why why should people go to the film? You know, go to movies when you look at. 85-inch screen TVs um, for less than $1,000. The 85-inch screen TV from 10 feet away is the same size for you watching as going to most AMC theaters. <laughs> like, you know, so, so that's the, you know, so you're, you're, you have the same aperture, 
you know, that's there. Um, and I think that, you know, so now that the price point with, you know, the sound bars and everything, I think the sound, I think a lot of sound bars sound better than a lot of average theaters anyway. So, so I think that, you know, um, I think that that's going to be a big challenge um, as things move forward. Um, next question. Vic Hernandez from Springfield, Missouri. What's your favorite way to access podcasts? Uh, go ahead, Chris. Uh, Vic, I'm lazy, so I just use the uh, the app in the phone, and you know it works seamlessly when I go to my car because I have CarPlay in the phone in the car, and by and large, it works great. I'm super intrigued, although I haven't really done a whole lot of research or, in terms of like going to check them out. But I've heard a lot about the Podcast 2.0 apps, and the 2.0 apps have. A whole bunch of extended features, including the ability to ha- uh, recognize uh, different artwork per episode, which has been part of the pod, uh, the, the RSS um, uh, rules. I don't know what the word is uh, for a long time, but very few apps have the ability to see different artwork. They also do transcription and live notifications, and there's a lot of things in the um, in the uh, podcasting 2.0. Uh, protocol is the word I'm looking for. Um, that is super interesting, but I tend to be super lazy and I just use the the phone that's in the app, the, the, the app that's in the phone. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing. I, I, um, I used to use overcast and the only, and I used to use it and I, and I, I think overcast is great. It's probably the best podcasting, um, app that's out there. The problem was, is that I have a policy that when I change phones, I won't, I don't ever transfer from one phone to the other. I always just, I open the phone and I start installing apps as they arrive to me. Like, oh, I need that app. And then I go find the, find the apps that I had for that. But I don't, otherwise I'd, I've, you know, I bought, I don't know, bought or downloaded hundred, you know, 500 plus apps. I can't put those, I don't want to put those on. I don't want to fill up my, so over a year, I'll slowly fill up 10 pages of the old apps and the new apps that I want. But the next year starts at one page again. And and the problem that I had with Overcast, to Chris's point, was podcast. The podcasting one that Apple made was good enough that I started listening to stuff on there, and then I just, you know, just it was like it was easy. I know it's not as good, but that's always the that's always the challenge, right? Is 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 it good enough? Uh, good enough is the you know the enemy of great. <laughs> Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, if you're referring to serial po- podcasts, ones you watch on a regular basis, um, Apple I think it's TV, just how to listen more. to them. Oh, yeah. You're listening to Serial Podcast. Oh, on, on Apple TV. On an Apple TV because I want to settle down and uh, enjoy the comforts of my media room to do it. While listening to a podcast? Sure. Why not? Okay. No, I, I, I you know, my, my whole use of audio is so that I can do something else. <laughs> like, like I, yeah, I think that's the, the challenge with video podcasts is that, like, I, the, the reason I listen to a podcast is to fill time. I mean, to learn, but I fill time. And I think that the other challenge for podcasts, we talked about this on Mac Break, is that you have um uh that there's so many other things that are in audio now like you know the I, I have this thing called noah which i listen to incessantly um which is not news over radio or news over audio sorry um and uh and i uh, it's all these magazines and everything else that are all published you know and, and they read them and man and, it, and here's the worst part Here's the worst part is that I was paying for for uh, foreign affairs, which I've been reading or now listening to since I was like 12. And um, so I've been uh, – so I was paying for that and I was paying a lot of money for that. And then I noticed that what foreign affairs did to save money was they used NOAA to do a handful of their stuff. So that all the things that were 
via audio. Not all, the, the whole magazine wasn't available. Only the Noah ridden, read ones were available. And then I realized that Noah had all those articles in it, and it was like $8 a month. So then that was enough of that. A lot of podcasts now are also, also with video. I guess that's the direct yeah, door. It's just that they're not very successful. Like, I mean, statistically, they're the audio ones are the big ones. I mean, they might have video, but the you know ninety nine percent of their audience is is still still audio. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I use iHeartRadio in my um, in my car and in my on my phone because uh, they collect for podcasts. Things. Yeah, amazingly enough, uh, because a lot of them are some of them are live, uh, so I listen right. to them that way. And of course, on my PC, I'm old school. I use Winamp because it whips the llama's furry uh, posterior. Yeah, you know the the, the thing that um, I uh, we're, that we're experimenting with with um, Gray Matter Show, which is the the podcast that I work on with Mar- Michael Krasny, or a couple of us work on with Michael Krasny, is the idea of doing a live broadcast for a handful of people where they can ask questions, so the audience can actually be part of the conversation and then publish it later, and so that everyone else can listen to it. And we're still you know still playing with that format, but I think it's it's a fun format. But hope, hopefully more. More people will do it. Uh, next question. David Brady in New York, New York. Has anyone using the OBSBOT cameras gotten an OSC control to work? For the life of me, I cannot get any command recognized by this device. Yeah, reading stuff online, it seems to be people who are having trouble with it. And that's one of the reasons that we were interested in the OBSBOT was specifically the API. And uh, that's what really set it potentially as a competitor to the Insta360 link. Uh, unfortunately, its controls have been limited um, and, uh, and or not not really accessible. So it turns out that, I don't know, I'm sticking with the links. I have one OBSPOT, uh, but, I'm, but I'm st- I've been kind of sticking with the links. A quick reminder, of course, that you can ask questions throughout the hour. Um, you can put them into Mukana. You can vote on them up and down. Uh, if you're not there in Mukana, you can, uh, you can go to, you can ask askofficehours.com. Global. That's askofficehours.global. You can use this little QR code. This is this is the favorite. Chris's favorite part of the show is that when I point point to the QR code, look look, Chris, Chris, you can you could do this, Chris, right here. Uh, askofficehours.global. All right. Next question. Next one, Ann, is for me, and I have a question about what your procedure is for recording interviews. This is uh, pre-record questions. Yeah. Explain, Mitch. I don't understand what you're asking. Uh, Yeah, I'm sorry. It was kind of vague because I was typing and reading at the same time. Um, When you get to record somebody in a documentary or for an interview, what do you say to them before the camera rolls? You know, what's your general procedure for that? For example, uh, here's what I do. I I ask them their name and I ask them to spell it out. And and then we get ready to roll just in case that somebody didn't write it down. It's on the tape. So I'm, you know, building the lower thirds and everything. It's all there. And that worked for me. Great. Um, except I'll never forget, I was interviewing people at a uh, award ceremony, and the late and great Henry Kissinger was there. And I said, would you please state your name, and how do you spell it? And he, he looked at me like, I'm Henry Kissinger. Yeah, yeah, Just exactly. like that. And I'm like, yeah. I'm sorry. That's what yeah. I do for everybody. Yeah, yeah go ahead, Chris. You know, uh, that's one part of the ordeal, Mitch, is you know the, the, the business end. I will say that when it comes to interviews, my preference, my preference, and and it's not, I think it's a, my, uh, the minority of people prefer this. I like going into an interview knowing, I don't want them to know anything that we're going to talk about. I mean, obviously, you know, you're the rep for some product, whatever, we're going to talk about your thing, but I'm not going to tell you what we're going to talk about. I'm not going to send you questions. 
I'm not going to do any, you know, send my questions so I can prepare. I don't want you to be prepared. I would rather, I'm much, as an editor, storyteller, I'm much more interested in that moment where you see somebody thinking, you know? I think from a storytelling standpoint, that's way more interesting than somebody going, oh, hold on, let me get my notes up. And, you know, it's like, no, I don't want you to do that. And so uh, most producers want to give people an idea. They want to try and make them feel comfortable. And I, I like people feeling a little bit uncomfortable, but that's just me. Yeah. I mean, when we start an interview, uh, a lot of times I, you know, I just say, Hey, here's the deal. We're going to ask you some questions. Try to include the question in your answer. If you can, you know, you can, you know, so if I ask you, you know, uh, you know, what happened with breakfast, say, don't say it was good, you know, or, or respond to going, I had breakfast and it was the, you know, and I kind of give them some, some example like that. It's different every time breakfast turned out to be the one today. Um, anyway, so the, um, uh, but I ask them to like, to do that. I say, we're going to ask you some questions and that's it. And otherwise don't feel like we're going to edit this down. Don't worry about what you're saying or how you're saying it. Just say the, say the things that come to you, you know, the most important things to be there. Yeah. Go Chris. I will tell you as somebody who's edited a lot of interviews, a lot of corporate interviews, a lot of interviews where on the tape, I can hear the pr- producer say, yeah. please include the question in the, in your uh-huh. answer. I would say that more than 50% of the time, 60 to 70% of the time, that awkward interjection of the kind of question that they put into their answer gets cut off most of the time. And, and what it means, and because, because there is a difference in the person's mindset thinking, I have to work in the question to right. my answer. Oh, and here's my answer. It it feels different. It's, it feels staged. Yeah. Most of the time, it's not needed. I understand sometimes it is. One I, Another thing that I like to do with people is I'll tell them, um, I might ask you the exact same question again. I'll tell them this ahead of time. I, I might ask you a bunch of times. It's not because you're doing a bad, doing it poorly. I need variations for myself. Right. And, and I always throw all the shade on me. Uh, you yeah. know, I screwed that up. Oh, let me fit. You know, I'm so polite. You know, could I get you to do that one more time? I think I, I bumped yeah. the camera or whatever it is. You got it but, out again. Um, yeah, I always take the blame. But, but the whole thing about, you know, please answer the question. And this is, you know, thousands of interviews. Most yeah. of the time. It's good it note. gets cut out. It's good note. The, the, the. The one thing that you know, I don't, I don't do it because I feel like it would be inauthentic for me to do it at the same at the same level that was done. I think I mentioned this in, in the past. We have a we had a, a, a DP, and he, yeah, uh, you know, he, he's just a cool guy, you know, like you know, just just a cool looking guy, and he was just kind of like he was always, you know, um, very but but very uh, engaged. But he, and for the first time he did it, I, I didn't realize what he was doing until after I saw him. We worked with him a couple times, and he's really really good at what he does. He'd walk up to the person as soon as he walked into the room the first time, and it was always the first time he saw that person. He'd just go, "Wow, you are so much better looking than you were in the pictures they sent me." <laughs> like, like just like you were just you look great. Like you know, like this looks really. And and he had already pre lit it, and so that of course they looked great. They probably did look better than the pictures, but he did it with such um, verve. Like it was like it just like oh man, like and it you could see people just go. Hmm. You know, like, like, you know, like they were, now they're ready for the show. You know, like, like, you know, it, it, 
it worked. Like it, it, it definitely, but, uh, but I felt like if you don't do it well, it's going to sound, it's going to really fall. So I don't have the guts to do it well, but he did it perfectly. And it was just, it just, but you could see people just kind of straighten up a little bit and be ready to, you know, to be ready to, to do the thing. You know, one thing that, that I will say about interviews is that, um, that we are very, uh, we worry a lot about the entire experience. So if we're doing it remotely, it's one, like if we have to do, if we're sending them a kit, for instance, for an interview for Michael Krasny's show or for other shows, we send it to them. We want to do the tech check before they show up. So we want them to do it the day before, or the week before, or whatever. And the reason we do that is because there's a whole bunch of things that aren't going to work and we're going to have to work with them on. And we want to make sure that we get those out of the way so they forget about them when they show up um, and be, you know, and they can be present. The other thing we worry about is just, you know, there's sometimes when someone has a technical problem and we can't, you'll hear over comms on our end, just leave the knife in. Like, don't try to pull the knife out because like asking them to fix things is just going to make it worse. Um, they're going to get into a bad state because this their state of mind is super important. Uh, and then the final thing I'll say about interviews in general, um, you know, I come from a lawyer's family. Uh, we do direct and then cross. So we ask open-ended questions that are allowing them to just run on and talk, like, what happened then? And how did you do this? And, 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 and what happened after that? And, and what did you do there? And then for the client, especially for corporate, we ask pretty direct questions, you know, like, like, can you talk about this in specific things and make sure to talk about this, 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 and this, because we're trying to get clips. As Chris said, about 80% of those get lost because they just don't come out well, but we don't do that. The mistake people make is that they uh, they do that at the beginning. They start trying to micromanage their answers at the beginning. You lose the the interviewee really fast. Uh, go ahead, Mitch. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to agree with Chris. I think that uh, be asking it a second time, you know, there's a better chance of getting a better take. Uh, they may have had a chance to think about it. So uh, just uh, you know, to reinforce what Chris was saying, um, I like the idea that it uh, you don't say to them right up front necessarily that we need it in the form of a question. Because mm-hmm. you're right, people do t- tend to ponder that a wee bit. Um, let them do whatever they want to do, and if it, uh, if you didn't get it that time, do it the second time. Next question. Next question from Jay Robb in Sarasota, Florida. Panel's reaction to the news that Unity Software, with a company reset, walks away from the film VFX and what a deal. I think that they found that the water was really deep there. <laughs> you know, and so, so I think that the, like this is really hard. And, and I think that they're getting some attention from Apple. Um, they're also probably focusing more on what, their core strengths, which are going to be AR and VR and games and so on and so forth. So I think uh, I do worry about... Uh, about them a little bit in Unity because I think that, you know, I think that Unity is really a bridge for Apple to get from one place to the other. I don't know if Apple really is hoping to do all their work inside of Unity. And so so I think that while Apple's giving them a lot of support, I hope that that's not what's um, uh, driving that, you know, right now. So, um, but but I think that they're, they're probably finding that, you know, the problem with, and this is why people ask, why doesn't Final Cut pay more attention to the pro, the pro users, you know, in Hollywood? Because they have a whole bunch of niggling little requests that they want and all this weird stuff and they're apoplectic when they don't get them. And, you know, and there's like 1% of the market that needs that or 0.1% of the market. And that's why, you know, that's why it's really hard to focus on that market. And I think that that's what they found was that they just found a lot of people that really have very, very exacting needs um, that they need, but nobody else does. Yeah. So, so I think that that's, that's probably the challenge. Um, next question. 
And it's another QR code question. This is from Teresa Sabin of Moorhaven. Which lens hood do you recommend for the Apple iPhone 13 Pro without breaking the bank? Do you recommend leaving the lens hood on all of the time? And can the lens hood be used while using a gimbal or a stabilizer? If not, what do you recommend? And, and it's from the QR code. Um, the uh, uh, I don't use any uh, lens hoods for the for my iPhone. Um, but I probably should. <laughs> Definitely times when we pick up some stuff uh, when we're shooting. I mean, one of the things that I'm really working on is 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 going towards like how do I actually use the phone as a filmmaking device, and that's a whole different thing. It's if, for instance, one of the things that I'm looking at is getting a lot of the moment lenses because the moment lenses are going to allow me to um, you know always stay on the one x the one x sensor. The 24 millimeter sensor is the highest quality sensor on the phone. So if you're going to shoot something that matters, you're going to end up only using that sensor out of the out of the bunch. But if you want a longer shot or a wider shot, you're really adding lenses to it as opposed to that. So it is something that I'm researching, but I haven't done enough of it to comment on it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and I don't have an iPhone, but I, I did find the most ridiculous one out there that's only $29. Now, to throw that in your pocket with that on there, that might be a problem. But this is from the Profession anti-reflection cell phone. And one of the things they they point out about it, if you're shooting an aquarium, you you stick that up against the glass and it you don't see any of the back lens reflection of your uh, of your phone uh, reflecting in the glass if you're shooting at your local aquarium. But it also covers, it has a screw-in filter too, so it, take, it takes uh, screw-in filters so you can put a, a, uh, a nice polarizing filter on there to kill reflections. The one question I had about Alex, if you do use those uh, uh, lens holders slash uh, filter holders on your iPhone, does, does that mess up? If, especially if it's iPhone 15, does that mess up the LiDAR that it's using for autofocus? Uh, if there's a reflective piece of glass or a neutral density filter in front of it, because these big filters cover the whole uh, uh, camera, you know, array, array of cameras that are on the back of the phone. Yeah, the, um, uh, it is, uh, uh, it does, like you can't use it. Like, it, but it, but I don't think that the autofocus, I think the autofocus is not, completely dependent on the LiDAR. It, it, it is... So they use contrast autofocus yeah. as well. They use a variety of different things. I mean, they use magic for the autofocus. <laughs> like, you know, like it's... it's they use magic. everything that they that they have there, but it's it's um, it's um a fairly effective system. The thing that I'm most amazed by uh, with the Apple... And, and confused by a little bit with the, with the phone, if I take a picture as portrait, it'll take the picture and it keeps that depth data and you can refocus it inside of your iPhone Interestingly enough, you cannot refocus it inside of Photos. Like you can't open the app, Photos app, with a with a portrait and then re uh, refocus it. I'm like, what the what? Like it's it's only working. It's inside using the phone. computationally adjusting the focus. Yeah, but it's but that data is there. The like there's no reason to not not do it in the. I mean, it's super frustrating for me to to, yeah. to have to go back to my phone to refocus it. Or, um, you know, like I was just like, I don't understand. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. You know, about 15, 20 years ago, Google, uh, in their internal development, uh, changed a switch and they, they switched everything to mobile first. Like, like we're going to, we're going to concentrate on mobile first and then we'll get to the desktop stuff. And somewhere along the way, Apple has kind of done the same thing. It feels like to me, like there are things that you can do in the photos app in, in, in my iPhone that I only wish Final Cut could do. I just found this out this morning. If you can search for a sound 
in photos. So try, uh, open up your photos app and search for the word laughing. And it will find the word laughing in a screen if, if there's a sign on the wall that says no laughing here, but it will find the sound laughing in your in a video clip. And not only will it find it, but when you go to play the clip, it will put a little blue highlight bar over the portion of the clip where the laughing is. Yeah. That's that to me is really cool. It's also a little creepy because it means that my phone is constantly looking at well, and but, analyzing everything that's in my photos but library. I, I, I think that the interesting thing is is that your phone's doing it. Like it's keeping that data pretty locked down. Like it's not like when if someone else was doing it, it'd be all that data is, you know, I don't know, being used to figure out how to serve you up uh, ads for milk. But but this in this in this case it's it's a much you know, I think that Apple's so if the approach to it is, is less creepy. Doing it. So if the phone is doing it, and it may it may very well be that it is the phone that is doing it, then there's no reason why my desktop app can't do the same thing, except for the fact that they haven't done it yet. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think that's the thing that I'm frustrated by is because you get it like, you know, and, and it's just so much easier to see, you know, like it's 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 one of those things like I can I can see the um uh, a big image, not on my phone, and figure out exactly what I want, and then be able to deliver it. And you know, the, because the, the phone is good at some things, it's really not. It's really clunky. Like, oh, I want to send eight, eight circle takes of of an image to, you know, to to somebody. Doing that on the phone is a real pain. Like, it's just a real pain in the neck to be able to preview the phone, decide if they're good, decide if they're in sh- they're sharp, select them, and then send them all as a group. It turns out to be like it's much easier to do on the desktop. So it, it goes back and forth. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael asked, uh, would Blender have anything like the Unreal Engine Marketplace or Unity Asset Store or are most Blender workflows focused on modeling everything? Um, you know, I, I think it's a huge mistake for all applications to not have a marketplace. I think that what, what um, especially Unreal does is genius, you know, and I think that it's a, it's a massive mistake. I think, but I think that that should be everywhere. I think that in when you open up Motion or Final Cut, you should have a marketplace of lower thirds and sweepers and effects and everything else that you can buy for $8 here or $15 there. Uh, when you open any of the, I think that not having a marketplace in your app so that people can just get what they want. I think Adobe does a fairly good job with stock, stock fo- photos where you can very quickly within Photoshop search for things and buy them. I think that people are living millions and millions and millions of dollars on the table <laughs> by not doing that, by not building a way to, to let people distribute those, those things fr- within the app. Um, but I do think that the Blender community is much more model-driven. I think people use Blender to model more than they use it for a lot of the other tools that it has. So I think that that, that might be part of the problem there. Next question. From Danny Grizzle in Longview, Texas, interested in a new carbon fiber tripod with a 100 millimeter bowl. Vinton, Sackler, and O'Connor all owned by Vidium now, Vid- Vindendum now, and the Flowtech legs seem identical. What are the pros and cons of various brands or models within brands? Sackler, Active Heads? Uh, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Um, I don't know. I found people with carbon fiber uh, tripods, they don't last as long as the aluminum ones. Um, and they do get a little bit creaky noise-making. Uh, you got to be careful with them because uh, they can creak and, and get into your soundtrack if you're leaning on them or doing any kind of pans or tilts. So be aware of that. Uh, sometimes I've had problems with them sticking in uh, in cold weather or hot weather when the temperature changes, uh, The sometimes the clutches. 
But so I don't have any preference because I haven't used all of them since they've been taken over by that uh, Vidin Dindum or whatever it's called, <laughs> that single company that now controls all of the uh, tripod manufacturers, Vinton Sackler and O'Connor. But I have used the O'Connor and uh, uh, Vinton ones. Uh, no, it's Sackler one, Sackler and O'Connor, and find similar problems with their carbon fiber. But they're great because they're a lot, you know, they're lighter and uh, easier to transport over your shoulder when you're carrying a heavy camera. Go ahead, Mitchell. I have a uh, Sockler behind me over there. There it is. And that's a Flotec. It's carbon fiber. I have not used it very much. Um, however, it is a lot lighter, I can tell you that much, than a standard uh, um, you know, tripod where you have to un- unveil it. And the other thing that's, uh, that's cool about it is, uh, again, this is technology and history, you know, sort of tells the story. Um, if you need to move it or uh, level it, you just pull the two clips on it and you just raise it to where you want it to be and it just instantly goes there. There's no unfurling things and doing stuff. So I, I like it, except I would be concerned if I got it into a sandy or gritty, dirty environment whether or not the sliding um, uh, tripod part would uh, get interfered with and then, of course, uh, break down. I Go ahead, Chris. Back when I used to care about tripods, uh, what Mitch just said about the ease of which that you can adjust it is super important. And if they're all using, you're saying that they're all owned by the same, if they work exactly the same, it doesn't matter, but definitely look at that. And really, really, really the thing that you're looking for in a tripod is the head. And this is where a good field trip to B&H, if you have the ability uh, you could you can make it there, Danny. You could get there from Texas, uh, where you get to touch and and feel them and play with them. Uh, we really should do an office hours B and H field trip one day. It's so expensive every time I go. I've, and there's very few times I've gone to to the B and H where I haven't spent at least a thousand. Maybe we could do a B and H East Coast trip and a Film Tools West yeah. Coast trip. Yeah, that'd be fun. Absolutely. I'm I'm in, I'm, I'm actually in. LA a couple times this week. Courtney are, are going to eventually, and I are eventually going to have coffee. Uh, anyway, so the, um, uh, but uh, uh, I owe Courtney a 15 uh, foot uh, XLR cable, which I think about every time I come down to LA. <laughs> like, yeah, so anyway, um, anyway, the, uh, um, uh, oh, I don't spend a lot of money on tripods. And the reason for that is that the tripods that I use for production are so expensive and they cost so little because they're such hardened objects. Oftentimes it's 75 to 100 bucks. I would have to use it so many times for it to, to pay off because the heads I get, the head is typically 10 grand. Like I'm looking at, you know, Sackler 2575s, uh, you know, um, those those types of things. And I, and I just like, I can't afford what I want. The only tripod that I really owned that I own, I don't own it now, but Pixacore had probably three of them, which was the Hot Pod. So the these are the O'Connor used to make them. I think they're now Sackler, you know, they're moving them around in the brand. I don't know what that means. But the Hot Pod basically had a pneumatic center, which did a little like what Mitch is talking about. But imagine having a basically two feet that you can move 75 pounds up and down. You know, so if you have a teleprompter, uh, we use it primarily with teleprompters because you have a camera, teleprompter, everything's all there. And you just hit, you just pull, open a little thing and just lift it all up on a pneumatic center. And it was life changing, like, you know, and, and they're really hard to find, uh, even to rent. So, so I, um, owned a bunch of them because they're, but they're like with the head, they're like five grand each. <laughs> so that's the problem. Um, next question. Next question from Vic Hernandez in Springfield, Missouri. Not long after the early end of Tuesday's office hours, I received a notification from X that Alex Lindsay was live. It was interesting. Alex, uh, what was that? 
Yeah, there's a funny thing. I didn't know this, but evidently there, because we're always on the show from seven to nine. There's another show at seven from seven to nine called Creator Coffee Talk, um, and it's done by uh, the, um, the man about tech. It's, uh, that's his uh, uh, his um, uh, his his tw- tweet. I literally opened up Twitter to see how a tweet that I had done earlier that day was doing. Saw this little like, oh, this this is live, and I was like, no, eh, I wonder what that is, and I listened to it, um, and I was like, it's. It was an interesting conversation. And of course, I found myself, well, let's figure out how this works. I never talked on Twitter spaces before. So I was like, uh, I don't even know if my system will work, but I raised my hand. And then I ended up talking for, you know, 20, 30 minutes with folks there. So even when we finished this show, I ended up in another show, uh, filling out the rest of my 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 time before about 9 or 9, 9.05. Uh, it's really good. I think, you know, I talked to him and I, I think that we're going to... Uh, um, I think we're going to find a collaboration where he comes on our show and talks about um, their creative, their talk and what he does. And we, but then we broadcast it to his show live. And so, um, so I think that that's kind of a, we were, t- we were going back and forth. It was a really good community, very different conversation than what we have here. It's really, it's creator talk, but it's really more around the business end of things and uh, how to, how they, you know, the, the market and, you know, those types of things. So I think it's a really interesting conversation and it happens to happen exactly at the same time. So figuring out how we integrate together is still something I got to figure out, but we'll, we'll work on it. Um, next question. Sean Johnson from New York asking, good morning. I have a LiveU LU300 and considering purchasing a couple more or one of their transceivers before I rely solely on LiveU for my transmission purposes. Has anyone had any issues with LiveU network backbone going down? Same question for LTN. Thanks. Uh, not, not the network going down. I mean, obviously the challenges you have with live view is that if there's a lot of people using a cell, cell coverage in that area, it works not as well. Now, if you're using the live view as if you're doing an ethernet connection and you're using existing ethernet, um, stuff, I think that you'll, you'll probably be fine. Um, you know, so a lot of people use live views as contribution where it's just an easy way to get it from here to there. It's not, they're not actually using the cellular connections to make that actually work. Um, I haven't used the 300, so I'm not, I'm familiar with the 600 and the 800, but I'm not used to, I don't, and I had a 400 very long ago, but I don't, I don't know what the 300 does. But if you have an ethernet connection, you shouldn't find that. Um, I think LTN, uh, I don't have the, the whole thing of the LTN network going down, um, but we do have, you know, occasional, uh, you know, transport and code issues, you know, sometimes the frames aren't perfect all the time. Um, but, but overall it's a, it's, it's a pretty solid network and very much a standard network among news gathering at this point. Uh, next question. And it's for me, I'm asking, uh, or commenting the Tuttleman domed IMAX theater in Philadelphia is permanently closing. What does that bode for other art IMAX facilities? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Probably very little because the domed, uh, screen version, domed screen version, was called Omnimax, and it required a 180 millimeter uh, projection lens, which was a special lens and a special mounting for that projector. And it was only film. I don't think they ever converted any of them to digital. And uh, well, maybe they did that theater. But since uh, most IMAX theaters are flat screen and not dome screen, which is a, you, you have to produce for the dome screen with special, you know, special lenses used to, to shoot everything. Uh, so there are maps to that curved dome screen. And there's only about three or four of them left uh, that have that Omnimax projector. I think Ruben Fleet Theater in San Diego was one of them. And I think there was one in Vegas and was one in Vegas for a while uh, at the uh, Caesars, but I don't think it's there anymore. Uh, so, uh, and finding projectionists is uh, because it was film, unless they've converted to digital, finding projectionists to to run the things is getting very hard as well. 
Yeah, the um, uh, it's a really hard format to. And what's funny is, is that what you needed was a camera like the Sphere camera, which just came out <laughs> to produce content uh, for it. So it's really interesting. The timing may be off as far as you know when when to take it down. Uh, go ahead, Mitch. Yeah, if you had to say something to one of the benefactors, I know the the family member that runs the the Tuttleman uh, uh, Trust. Uh, what would you say to them about that? Uh, put in a regular IMAX. Like, you know, like it's not, I, I would, I wouldn't shut it down, but I would think about, uh, you know, putting a 15, I, I think that, I think that, you know, 1570 theater might become more, more interesting in the future. Um, I would also, you know, think about the, if you're thinking about uh, theaters in general, we just have to really consider what is the use of theaters and is it film distribution? Um, and I'm not clear it is like, you know, like I, I think that theaters are a great place to get a lot of people together to enjoy something. But I think that if you look at whether it's AMC's, you know, Zoom activations or IMAX's live network, there's a future coming for theaters, which is that we're all going to get together and experience something as a as, you know, live. Um, and I think that's a much more compelling model, business model over the next five years than film. I think you're going to see film slowly wind out as far as, you know, just it's, what we're not going to see. It's not going to go away. Like, so I'm not saying that film is going to go away. But the number of screens will drop dramatically if they don't find something better to do with them. You know, like they're not going to be able to maintain the, the you know, the 10,000 plus, 12,000 plus, whatever that number is now of screens um, for film distribution. It's just not the model's not there anymore, you know, and it's not going to come back. And, you know, Disney's problems are mostly self-inflicted and based on, you know, uh, content. Um, but it's also just a general uh, malaise of the of the market. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. You know what's really strange about – I asked a question, obviously, but uh, I know David Tuttleman of the Tuttleman family that put that up. And I also know Penn Ketchum, who has Penn Cinemas in the entire region, both of yep. which uh, have done that. And um, I just was curious about why. What could we do to encourage that type of usage? And uh, I think that's good. Good advice. I'm in a position to do something about it. Yeah, I'm, I, I used to go to Penn Theaters in uh, in uh, Pittsburgh. I guess there was there's a couple of them outside of Pittsburgh. Lancaster. As well. Yeah. Uh, uh, but they, they, I, yeah. Ne- next question. Next question is Douglas Carmichael. Um, I read that the name ChatGPT sounds like something else when said with a French accent. After all the open AI drama dies down, could you see the company rebranding their flagship product in the same vein as Bard or Cloud? Now go ahead, Courtney. Well, the, it's been integrated since uh, Microsoft owns 49% of uh, open AI and now has incorporated the ChatGPT engine and a lot of their models into uh, uh, their uh, co-pilot and which is now integrated with all of their products, uh, you know, all the Office products and and in Windows 11. Uh, you can just pop it out and a- ask questions and have ChatGPT answer. So uh, they call it Copilot, so they, they have the right to change the name. And and in French, yeah, it, it could sound a little scatological, but, you know, so it is, they may have to change the name. You know. I, don't, I don't think that that would be the reason that they would change the name, um, but I think that they, uh, ChatGPT, I think is a, it's a, it's a bridge. You know, it, it is not designed to be the final product that everyone's using all the time. It was, a, it's a way to, uh, to get out there and be part of the conversation, um, in maybe part of letting people experiment with it. Um, but I don't think that their, their goal is to make it the be all end all. Their goal is to have more people adopt it as an API, you know, and use it as the back end. So they're not, you know, so I think that it's, they don't, I don't think they really care how big, I don't think they're worried about the brand anymore, um, because eventually it'll get, It'll become something else, you know, or become part of the back end of 
many, many things. Uh, we'll be jumping. We'll be talking to Robert Green here in just a second about uh, EVS operation and 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 uh, replays and broadcast. Um, the uh, uh, just a quick reminder that on fr- on Saturday we have uh, meetings every Saturday for volunteers <laughs> of some way, shape, or form. This Saturday we're, we're going to be talking. We're going to be having a, uh, a meeting for the new office hours panelists. So if you're interested in being a panelist and you want to talk about those things, uh, nine o'clock after the show um, from nine to nine thirty, we'll have a discussion about what it takes to be a new panelist, answer your questions, and um, kind of give you a sense of how to get started. So uh, sign up for that. That goes out in the email. Um, you can sign up to be a panelist there. Welcome back to the second hour. And uh, really excited to have Robert Green here to talk about um, B, uh, EVS and, and, and replay. You know, when I, uh, I didn't know that EVSs exist. So the funny thing about it is, is that there's the world of, e- of broadcast, which has um, EVS is kind of part of everything. And the world of events where we use things like uh, Playback Pro and we use things like Watch Out and we use things like spiders. And and so there's this whole little world over here. And if you grew up in that world, which is mostly what I, I grew up mostly in event world, um, you didn't know that an EBS existed. And, uh, you know, just it was like this, I, you know, didn't ever hear about it at all. Um, in fact, I went to a presentation and uh, it was about how EBS had, they, they, they've expanded how they did distribution for the, you know, for the, the, um, the World Cup. And I thought, oh, they do encoding. <laughs> I had no idea that they had any kind of hardware that was connected to this. And so a client um, that comes from broadcast had asked us to cover an event, which we're good at, and stream it. And it was a 24-7 event. And they said, well, what we want you to do is just time shift a little bit, you know, so that we can have uh, – we can if, if someone runs if, – if one, if one seminar runs a little over, just time shift the other one. And and have it just start right after it, and we can put a couple little things in there, and then and then run it. And I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> like like I didn't say that to them. I was like, oh sure, no problem. Like like my response to the thing is like, yeah yeah absolutely, yeah, that'll work. And then then there was like these frantic calls of like I don't like who does this and how does this work? And I and I came up to speed on what an EVS was, and then we started using like now I'm kind of like every time there's some playback, I'm like, we'll just use an EVS. Like, like I just, you know, um, and there are other ones, there's dream catchers and there's Mirai, uh, and, and a couple other playback things. But the, the one you see the most in the, in the field are, are these EVSs and Robert Green has been, has spent a lot of time on these EVSs. And so we're really excited to, um, to have Robert on to talk a little bit about what it takes to, or, or what an EVS is and, um, and uh, and then and how to, how he uses it and how he has used it. So welcome welcome to the show, Robert. Uh, thank you for having me. Hello, Alex. Hey, so, and yeah. <laughs> how did you get started? How did you get started in, in in being an EVS operator? Well, started in tape. So just kind of like a nightmare a tape <laughs> operator would ever have. <laughs> there we go. A little AI fun there. Yeah. Um, I started in tape as an intern at a local TV station here in Los Angeles. And poked my head in with the chief editor, and he kind of let me on the slide, gave me a stack of tapes with a script on it, go in there and go put that together. So gave me some very basic instruction on how to use an edit controller and left me. And these are, these are like you're doing mark in, mark out, right? So you're, you're, you know, mark in, mark out of these big, these, these big PVWs that are, you know, the, the, the playback systems. Is that, is that what you're doing off of Betacam? Pretty much, but we had edit controllers, so that was a little a little less rudimentary. So mm-hmm. we could do use something like this. So on the left is a convergence edit controller. It's mm-hmm. mark in, mark out, 
you know, you can do insert edits and all that fun stuff. Uh, and then I learned. And, and the funny thing is, when you did this right, you had the tape had to come up to speed. So when you marked it, it had to go back and then play forward and then have the other one hit record when the other one was at speed at just the right frame. Is that is that right? Correct. So we had an AB roll um, edit controller use the Ampex Ace. And so that's the room where we could do dissolves. The other rooms were just simple cuts, basically like using just an RM440. To, I'm sorry I'm being old, but I, you, I just want you to, like if you're listening to this, just remember there was another room <laughs> to do the do dissolves. There was another room that you went to to do the dissolves. Anyway, that had the hard. two better edit controllers that a, that AB rolled a... Um, beta and a umatic and so when you're talking about that you uh, set your edits um do your marking in and out or just to mark in and have it be open ed and ended uh they would have to roll back the two machines then be in sync then they would roll and sometimes if it's a sophisticated controller it could nudge it into sync but if it didn't lock up and go into sync then it would abort the edit and roll back and try again <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's amazing that we ever edited with tape. <laughs> like it just, you know, it's more amazing that we ever edited with film. You know, anyway, so so you um uh, so you 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 started in tape playback. I uh, started with uh, editing, and then editing. occasionally was thrown into the playback room when needed. So we had like you know four beta machines, and you just fill them in order as you go down the rundown, kind of to kind of right. like a tape monkey, boom, 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 and. Right. <laughs> Cue them up and go, and it's live TV, all kind of very fast paced. And 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 when did you when did you when when were you introduced to an EVS? Because EVS has been around for a long time. Yeah, they start. They're celebrating twenty five years in EVS right now. So they started in the nineties, and um, I just got I got, got exposed to that um, later on in my career um, when I started in cable entertainment and did studio shows there. So we started in tape and we had to use an edit controller that would sync up to uh, control uh, eight VTRs so that we would master a show that had two different versions, a two different audio configurations. So we had a dirty version and a clean version so that we could push the clean version to international so they could resell right. the stuff and, and when translation you define dirty versus clean dirty versus clean dirty would be without the graphics so like when your uh qr code comes up and our names come up there's a version of the program feed that does not have any of the graphics on it right that way you and, can re re you can go back and fix problems if those graphics were wrong um but you can also uh restrap it if it's going out to a different if you're a different service right yeah, or pull it as an archive tape, reuse the material in the future. A couple years right. down the line, your graphics package may change. So you could put the current graphics package on top when you right. play back. And what was your first job with the EVS? Uh, first job well, was tape, tape, record, right. record and playback. And we stuck our toe in uh, doing, uh, mastering these entertainment shows. And they were uh, basically we were mastering the show onto tape so that, it, it had to go to time. So we would uh, use the time code of the tape, start at one hour, and your first segment would be, be 12 minutes. And then we would skip forward on the tape three minutes and 50 seconds for the commercial break. Right. And then insert edit the B block and go on and so forth. So we used a little, we stuck our toe in with um, going from 
tape playback to server playback with the profile, Grass Valley profile server, mm-hmm. to play back our um, tape elements. And then eventually, after the Japan, Japan earthquake, uh, we needed to learn how to master the show in Can server. You, <laughs> what happened with the, Japan, the, the Japanese earthquake, the earthquake in Japan? So we, this has been talked about on the show before. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the, basically, they wiped out the only tape factory that was still making beta cam tapes that are the broadcast standard. And these are, I think, the, specifically the SRs, right? This is the, the SR tapes that were produced there. And they had two of them, right? They had two. They had one in L.A. that was producing it and one in Japan. And occasionally, I don't know what the exact thing was, but they took the one in L.A., they would take it back every couple of years and recalibrate it with the one that was in Japan. And they just happened to both be there at the same time. Right. Unfortunate luck there or not. So and, the, and, the, and the issue was is that the, that the tape was already, everyone knew tape was on its way out. So the process of rebuilding those tape machines, it was like, is it like if it had happened in 1995, they would have rebuilt them. But happening when it happened, Sony wasn't sure if it was going to make sense to go through the millions and millions. I don't know how much they're, the impression I get is they were really expensive. <laughs> like, are we ever going to get a return? And But what it did do is it drive, I know it drove everybody to solid state. Like it was just, it, it, it was, you know, or drives or EBSs or whatever, but it would just tape no longer was an option. And that happened, I mean, it happened very suddenly too. It was, it was not what everyone was ready for. Yeah. And we were using the large form digi beta tapes so that, uh, we were scrounging to make that happen. And then we accelerated our transition to mastering on server. So, right. And, and, and there's a, do you, on the West coast, do you remaster the show when it's done as much as they do on the East coast? Uh, we do fixes, so mm-hmm. they may have a version one of a package, and then they saw something wrong, and then they will uh, give a revision, uh, file transfer it down. And when we had tape, we actually did match frame edits and played it back into the, um, you know, rolled it back in with an insert edit. So we used the VTC uh, uh, buff box there, which is kind of like a mini CMX in a little box. And so we could do insert edits and you see that the row along the top are all the VTRs, but it also included the players as well as the recorders. So we could match frame in it, edit into a, a, a piece of tape or the server. And we were able to, you know, do fixes. Also, lang- you know, if we had any language or anything else, we could bleep something out or other things like that. Right. Because a lot of these shows are not, they're close to live, but they're not live. They're recorded in the afternoon for an evening record and, you know, a lot of times live looks a lot rougher. Like when you see like Thanksgiving live was a good example. Like if you see it on the East Coast, it looks rough. It, this is on the Food Network or whatever. It, 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 it's good, but it's, it's, it's a much sloppier show than you're expecting. But by the time it gets to the West Coast, they've made, you know, 50 or 100 edits <laughs> you know, to, to the in an EVS. And they just they have and the producers walk up with a list and they just have they just list out like these are all the things we need to have changed. And the operator goes goes to town. You know, to make yeah. it happen. Now, it looks like those controllers that those. So that's really where that EVS controller came from. Do you have a picture of the EVS controller? Is it is it really came from the it's it's almost a, a function of the old, the old, uh, more hardware controllers, right? It is in, in probably a more elegant version, because yeah. I think in sports, the key thing is you look along the, the top row, you see little red buttons, the F keys. Those are basically parking lot spaces for clips. 
So right. you make them, you watching something live, you make a mark in anticipating that's likely to be the beginning of a clip. Right. Um, and then you mark an out, oh, this play just happened, and you push one of those buttons that are not highlighted, and it creates the clip into that position. So is that is like a, in, a, in like a football game, you might mark in as they w- walk up to the line of scrimmage and then mark out when the play is over, knowing that that's going to be a clip that, you're prob- that you want to be ready to hand back. Oh, you'd probably mark in at the position where the replay is going to happen like the the most the key part of the action okay you can all you can anticipate making that mark and and you can and, always add to the beginning so you can just yeah. you, you just see something happen and you hit it um on your on your system and that, knowing that you can sc- still scroll back because everything's there yeah and i'm i'm not a sports person normally so i'm kind of I do what I would do in any situation. I'm anticipating what the clip is going to be, you know, what they would like to want to see played back. Well, and just to back up, explain how an EVS works, because it's it's recording all the time, right? EVS is always recording. So to the question of that, how do you start an interview record? We just say over the intercom system, EVS is always recording. (laughs) So... Well, well, the the funny thing, you know, what, what, you know, because after I learned how an EVS worked, you know, we did it for this one show and I was like, oh, this is like life changing. You know, I was like, I can just move things around and everything else. We were doing all these live hits for things like Dreamforce and everything else where we have a jib coming down, swinging down in, into into it with a host that doesn't do this all the time. So they, you know, they're, they're a little deer with light in eyes, look on their face as they work on it. And we were doing those live. We were coming out of a, out of a conference and then we'd come to these live and and as soon as we saw the EVS, I realized, oh, none of the Olympic stuff that we see, and none of the, like not almost some of it's live, but very little of it. And I and I realized that you know, so what we would say is, hey, just you're going to see the jib move, just start when you're ready, you know, like like just just look at it, and if, and if it doesn't work, we'll start again. And we would do it. Now we would we would only we were sometimes still recording it when we went live, so we would do it because we wanted it to look live. We wanted not to have it be like a different time of day or anything else so we would only we would just start three minutes before we had to go live on the evs and just let them you know kind of and if we had to redo the start a couple times to just get it right or you know whatever some people were nailed it every time some people needed a a try or two to get it off the ground and then we would just be in it but the the point was is that because it's always recording it's we were able to you know just kind of play it out at our leisure um, and again, like for big conferences, that becomes super powerful because again, when and and what's what and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it today and have Robert on was because un, when you understand an event of this playback system, you're able to like once we started adding EBSs, like and people literally groups of people would come over at events. These are big events with the biggest event companies in the world. And they'd come over and circle around the EBS asking me what it was because they they were like <laughs> It was like this new thing, this new shiny thing that they had never seen before. Because what we were doing is, oh, that the next the, this conference ran a little over, so we'll just we'll just go ahead and um, uh, you know, just start the next one three minutes late, even though it's you know, so we're just uh, we can be thirty seconds behind real time, and it's it's simply playing back because it's really just a database. Um, yeah, and Robert's got a picture of what the server looks like versus what the controller looks like. Yeah, and it was it started as simple as a big giant server and EVS is basically a supersized TiVo yeah. and an eight track machine all in one. So it is always recording and then if you um it just when it runs out of media, it just starts to delete the oldest 
piece of video on the system. So right. and, the and system, oftentimes that's like 24 hours. Is that a pretty typical yeah, one? Yeah, so we have a 20-channel system and across two servers now that uh, runs most most of the channels are 16 to 24 hours depending by the end of the week we build up material so it's every time you take uh, make a clip it takes media away from the live spool or eight track uh system so it's you can always go back and grab things right. because it's always recording on every channel so. yeah and so th- think about that again 20 channels recording all the time and and because really what you're doing there is it's just a you're marking in and marking out endpoints so you're the data that it has to that it knows it's not it just it doesn't have to it's not doing a lot of processing it's just saying i'm going to start playing here and i'm going to end playing here yeah um so it's a and the key that has made evs so successful is that uh this server is pretty much bulletproof yeah. that ser- and we have you know, now we have uh, more controllers and interfaces and those are all on windows and ip director uh does a lot more than what the LSM, the old school T-bar controller can do. So there's more database, there's editing, all sorts of features there. But the base of the system having a rock solid server, the windows can have dish issues, but the server that's recording the media is always working and almost never fails. Yeah, it takes a little bit to set up. Like it is sensitive to Genlock. You know, like if it doesn't have a signal, it's like I can't do anything for you here. And it's you know, it's 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 uh, those those kind of things. But once you get it going, it's it's a machine. And and how long do you feel like it took you to get comfortable? The the the, the controller is the big thing. So the controller is both really powerful, but it's also what keeps most people out. like the EVS is very cryptic. You know, like you know, it's not something. This is not a, a device that you that you rent. And go well. I'm just going to run an EBS and then I'm going to run my show. Uh, you hire someone, and usually they've spent at least a year on it before you're willing to hire them. And usually, most of the people we hire, five to ten years is kind of you know uh, table stakes. You know, like like even because it's such a complicated machine. You were going to say something. You were going to show. You were showing a little bit of that controller in action. Uh, this is the LSM controller, which stands for Live Slow Motion Controller. And yeah, it can be very cryptic when you look at it, but it's pretty well ergonomically. Laid out, yeah. So you'd you'd have your right hand on the wheel and your fingers crab legged over to those buttons where it's play and EDE and a, a couple other functions, and you can you know scroll, get back to the clip, and of course like what you're saying, time slipping was particular powerful. I mean, really, all I have to do is you could literally pause live TV, make a mark in, and you know use the jog wheel to get to your position, mark mark it in, and then. Go. Upon cue, play, and you're you've just time shifted uh, live television. Well, and 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 really think about like this is the device that's being used when you're watching any NFL game or most games in general. You're you're watching an EVS running, you know, and and the thing to remember is like I'm like I'm I know enough about how the sausage is made that watching a game, I'm li- I'm watching and listening to the to the cadence, and I'm just amazed. Like, I'm going to show you three or four different replays, you know, from different angles, and it's all going to happen in 35 seconds. Like, we found the clip, we identified it, we play, we're playing it out, we're talking about it, drawing over it, putting graphics over top of that. It really is a magical, you know, system that kind of gets that gets built in there. Um, the uh, Now, again, on a daily basis, how that's I'm talking about sports, because that's what it's used for a lot. But on a daily basis, you know, what's your day-to-day look like? 
uh, my day to day, it, it depends upon the position I sit in. I either sit in an edit position or a playback position. And we're using IP director. So if we uh, look at this one, that's a, our typical workstation, two screens on IP director. And it's basically, it's just another controller, except it's run, it's a database controller. But which, it feels a little bit more like an editor, right? Like a nonlinear editor. Like you've got a yeah. couple tracks now, but you're not, it doesn't do effects, right? I mean, at least the last time I used it, we didn't have, we can't like do fades or. Dissolves and wipes. So. Dissolves and wipes, yeah. Yeah. And when we're mastering a show, we're, uh, it, two different shows have different workflows for assembling the show. So one show, we're actually rolling, recording live, live to the timeline. So, right. and when we have a, a bust or a mistake, we will go back and uh, we'll stop the edit and then we'll play the last 10 seconds of a sound piece and then roll back in. And then at the end of the segment, we'll just pull up all the edits. Well, and, and we um, and we do shows where we run the show two minutes behind or five minutes behind um, and we can correct things. We're correct. You know, if someone who's really good at IP director, we'll have them sitting there and there. The whole show is running five minutes shifted. Um, and, and then we have made edits to things, um, while the show's running. Like, you know, we, we, they ask like, if I've got a five minute window, I'm, I'm telling them that you can edit up to two minutes of that. <laughs> you know, like we need a little bit of room, but you can, you can cut things out of it and we'll, and the, so are you playing the timeline live yeah. and then, okay, yeah, it's, that's kind of so what they, they do that with national news, I believe. So, yeah, so uh, we're. Yeah, so we we you're, we run in that chasing live. <laughs> yeah, we're chasing, chasing live. live. Yeah, right. and and it's and so we we uh, and it's been it's super effective, you know. And when nothing goes wrong, and what's interesting is we you know a lot of times we have when we're encoding, we might encode the the real time one as well as the backup one, and and then we can deliver out, you know, we can right at the very end because we're encoding it to HLS segments, we can deliver the one that is clean, you know, right after the show. So yeah, so, so in our case, we're live, li kind of semi live to the timeline, and then you know, then we know what the segment time is for the A block, and then we move to another timeline for the B block, with its stripe to adjusting for the commercial break. So A block ended at twelve minutes, come B block comes in at fifteen minutes, and then we build the show, and then the uh, line producer has already has a sense of how timing of the show, and they know where they need to kill things as they go down the line. Yeah, and, and so, like some of the national television stuff that I've sat in the back of, you know, you're it's recorded about an hour before. <laughs> like it's, it's, you know, it's not like it's, you know, it has to be pretty close. Uh, but you hear there's two people that are sitting there the entire time talking about how heavy or light the show is. You know, yep. we're, you know, 20 seconds light, we're 40 seconds heavy, we're whatever, and they're negotiating how to fix that. You know, and that's all then right at the very, you know, they're trying to do it during the show. And if they can't, then there's like a little bit of like, what are we going to, what's the filler that we're going to put in and a promo or, or something. To or if their timing out. doesn't work out, wow, there's a lot of beauty shots at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I was, I, I asked, because I was talking to the BBC, you know, that all that temperature stuff at the end is just closing up the hour. Yeah. <laughs> like time-wise. Like, that makes it super lazy for a, a segment producer, line producer, because that's a lot of squishy room you can play with. Yeah, exactly. They, it's, it's a funny thing. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, Robert, uh, thanks for being here. Um, you obviously made it through the tape room uh, into the uh, new digital age with the EVS device. Let's say that I want to begin and in, get into the EVS business. There's not one nearby that I can uh, experiment with, and it's not something you purchase uh, for the sake of learning it. Um, how do you get the experience to get the job? 
Uh, well, vocational uh, schools are very great with that, or your community college. Many of them will have uh, some a TV program of some sort, and they do have some good equipment. So here in Southern California, we have Northridge, we have uh, Santa Ana College, uh, and a few others that all have TV programs. And uh, one of the really beautiful ones, uh, so I hear through my friends, is the Annenberg Television School at USC. And they have a newsroom, and they put on a real show, and uh, they use state-of-the-art equipment. And they're, I believe they're using EVSs also, but there's... Uh, and they use the newsroom system like iNews and things like that. So they, you start with a vocational school and then you can get into doing, doing shows like uh, sports shows that, or the new shows that a local campus will produce. That's great. Thank you, John. Hey, hey Robert, are you going to go through the, the actual technical workflow of who's pushing the buttons and what the TD's doing and et cetera, et cetera? Are we getting there? Or am I just being uh, nervous? Sure. Well, we're just kind of following. Let's go ahead. Yeah. We can definitely do that. Yeah, <laughs> so walk, if you want to do- walk us through the process. Okay. Uh, so for my part, I let's say my day is a playback operator. And, you know, we two different shows kind of have two different workflows. So uh, we'll have two shows for this one production and then the other ones for another network. And that it has a different flow. So stuff is for us for a playback operator. Stuff is file transferred down, and we have a rundown computer that has all tells us what is going on in the show. And I look for my tape elements, and I basically stack the show in order. And we have a with the IP director as a database. We can have lots of different IP directory windows open, and I can have one just for the segment of the first show and start to put things in position order. And so I can move them around and have them ready for playback. And that first show we do is done out of order. And I am all, all we're doing is that uh, when a certain talent comes out, we record their segments. Right. So you don't care about them being in order. You're just, you're just grabbing them as they're available. I put them in order first off, just so that, they're accessible to me right away. So no matter what direction they're going, they want to do um, elements in the A block, I can load them up according to the uh, to the right. Uh, rundown right away. And it's a very manual process for this show because it's so fast turnaround. So you, you look at the screen on the right and there's uh, these little VTR panels on the bottom uh, right there. And we have six of them and we can load the clips in according to the rundown order, but we can put them in, just get them out there as fast as possible. So nobody's waiting. So, and then they're triggered by the um, TD. So this show has kind of a strange workflow. And then, uh, then we clip off each of those segments and then an editor next to me is dropping them into a timeline and he's building the show with placeholders. The commercials are in there because it's syndicated and he has templates for or, that. Or there's holes, right? For so you might have a, like local holes, like so you have the syndicated Correct. ads that are that are there, and then you have just black black frames with tr- with triggers, right? So. Right. And the playlist, the and what we do is we we pre build the commercials, and the commercials will already have the blacks in them, and uh, so when so th- those are kind of done ahead of time. So one of my other jobs is creating commercials, and you got to go file, get the ISKI code, and download them, and put them into a playlist and then you take the playlist that has all the commercials with the little black spacers and all that fun stuff 
and it always hits a certain length of time and it has to match. And we lots of detail to double check to make sure that right. Then you flatten that into a clip and then that clip is used by the show editor and on another EVS machine doing IP edit and he's dropping And that's them pretty much done every day, right? I mean, that's, this is your, this is your setup. So that's kind of like something happens in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that you're, that's, you're, that's every day. Yeah. So yeah. in the span between, uh, noon and seven, we're putting out three shows. So right. two shows that air that day and one show that airs the next day. So, and so, and they're, one show is played out over the fiber line as well as file transfer because there's still some affiliates and some people that need it uh, different ways. But we feed it out so that it gets it, at another location. It gets um, all the you know closed captioning and all the other little things it needs to to be played out. So and and the um uh uh. When you say file transfer, what what file? What are you sending affiliates if, as a file, and wh- how do you send it to them? Uh, right click send to. <laughs> so. I just didn't know. I didn't know. Are, are you using a Spera, or is it a you know? You know? Do you know what the file format is, or do you you know? Like, I'm just curious. What I think it's sent. usually it's like MXF fifty. Right. So and but I think it gets wrapped. It might get a different wrapper for different people. So we we can send out in a group where it'll send. It'll send it to four places. It'll send it to our Avid. It'll send it to our uh, archive system. It'll send it to uh, a copy somewhere else. And then it goes out to a uh, our cable hub, our broadcast hub, master control that's in New Jersey. And then it they do whatever they want. And it actually bounces to another place in Denver. Right. So, so. Um, let's jump into the questions. All right, first one from Talalek Lopez Waterman in Galisteo, New Mexico. What are the indications technically of playing off a growing file? Does the recording have to be a special format for that to be possible? Go ahead, Robert. Uh, for a growing file, um, I think it, you know, for for EVS, you know, when something is transferring into us, we it just uh, on the VGA screen. It just shows up blinking with a percent sign and, and, and then this the clip is a, name. I mean, the the most. I mean, you can correct me. I mean, I know that there is file transfer. There's a file transfer process. Ninety nine percent of the ways we get things into EVS is to play them into them. You know, so like we want to give it to it in the format that it wants to record as. So when you're talking about the growing file, the EVS, you know, it's uh, we find it simpler for that from a growing file perspective is to you know you're it's just baseband sti going into the into the machine right well if you're playing it to yourself yeah so and then you're letting like a frame shaker or or through a td switcher or a router handling the format then if it's in the router system then it's already a format that evs likes if it's a file transfer in then it goes through an x file and yeah. gets transcoded and then lands in my evs machine and it can be a growing file and i can if i see the file name i can drag it and put it into the player right away we you used have to a have growing, wait i'm sorry i'm, I'm yeah. uh, that that just short circuited my brain um so this is not how i use an evs uh you can you can p- run a growing file in through x file well, the X file dumps it into the IP director, so it right. But you're not taking a growing file into X file, right? I mean, you're you're taking a whole file into X file, or is it? Can you take a a growing file into that? Uh, well, it it 
it comes from an outside source and it has to go through X file to get into EVS. Right. But it's a, it's a defined video. Like if you're, if you're doing, if it's growing file, it's typically something that's coming in as SDI and it's, it's the EVS is recording it, right? If you're taking it through SDI, then it's basically paying it, playing it baseband. And then it's, it just sees video. It doesn't care if it's a camera or a, a video clip. So but you're not. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think we're on the same page. I think so I then it's live. But we also get file transfers. So that's where it to yeah. the EVS. If it, you know, back in the olden days, now we have 10 gig networks and things yeah. are a lot faster. But when they were slower and we had to wait till like if it was a two minute story, we had to wait till it was least halfway to be right. safe. And then we would actually could dump it into a channel and start to play it back while it's still file transferring and growing into the EVS. And fundamentally, this is the, you know, it, EVS is conforming everything to the format that it needs to do the database, you know, to, to, to be able to cut. And this is kind of the underlying principle from that I've had for a long time, but, I, but it was more underlined after I started using EVSs, which was that I conform, you know, it, th- there's a difference when you're, especially when you're doing production is that everything conformed to the same format, <laughs> you know, like, because, you know, and that's what, so EVS isn't jumping from a ProRes file to an MXF file to a, you know, it's, it is going, it, when it's playing, it's going from one EVS file to another EVS file. No matter what you pump into it, it's going to end up in the format that it makes sense. Is that, that make, is that right, Robert? Right. So whether, so if you're feeding it in through a switcher, by definition, it's going to yeah. land, it's in the right file format or, you know, the video format. It's been right. predetermined. Or if it's a file transfer, then it's going through an X file and it's transcoding into our system. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, that was actually my question is how do you get a file uh, off of it as original as possible without having to go out uh, to master control or the switcher? Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead, go ahead Robert. Uh, well, uh, you um, yeah, that's, you get drag, it out or get it in. I think you just talked about How do you get a in. file out? Oh, out. Oh, yeah. You, you uh, file transfer it and it goes out through the X file again. So, or you play it through baseband. So... Yeah, and, and X files are. I mean, that, it's just a converter, you know. So it's just gonna you, you tell it yeah. what it's. It's like a gate gatekeeper. So there are more PCs that do different um, tasks for EVS, but the EVS server is just a big giant video server itself, and there's lots of other things attached to it. So our IP directors are individual computers. So you know, we'll have three operators that all are on different IP directors accessing all the same materials, and now we even have. Uh, AWS involved, and we have some virtual IP directors that live at AWS, which is kind of yeah. clunky and weird. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Funsak Dorje from Dharamsala, India. Hi, panelist. Has anyone used a Roland P20D for instant replays? Please explain the workflow. Is this the cheapest hardware solution for an instant replay? I don't know, Robert, if you have any experience with that or not. I do not. Um, yeah, this is not I mean, on that one. The hard part. The hard part really is a lot of people have tried to find a less expensive way to do playback. Mm-hmm. And what I will say is that you can get something that kind of works for playback. People have hacked Hyperdex. Um, there is, uh, you know, I mean, e- Everts. When Everts is trying to find a cheaper way to do things, you know that there is an opportunity because they're everything Everts does is really expensive, but they have a dream catcher. Uh, Ross has the Mirai. Uh, is it Mirai? Is that, I think that's the, um, the Mira. Ross playback. Mira, Mira, sorry. Um, Mira, uh, yeah. Mira, um, uh, that, that is their solution for that. The, um, 
Uh, so that, and those are, you know, again, tend to be less expensive at the, at the, you know, in the software area, there's three play from, from new tech, um, that's there. And then there is, uh, for Softron makes one called M replay that will do it all on your Mac. Um, so there's a, you know, and that, that's M replay is probably the least expensive one that I've used and, and it, it's worked fairly well. I don't tell a client, Hey, we were going to use an EVS, but now we're going to use a, uh, an M replay, you know, it's, it's, you know, you know, we do it as a, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a really good one for the price. It's not a replacement for an EVS and neither it has been most of the time. People will tell you that the, um, that the Mira and the Dreamcatcher will do a lot of the same things. One of the big problems we have is finding people like Robert. Um, finding EVS operators is a relatively straightforward process in most major cities. Finding someone that can run something else is non-trivial. Like, the, I mean, I think that's part of the thing is it's been around for so long and it's so, I don't know, Robert, if that's your experience or not, but it's, you know, it's. Well, the principles are the same on, on a lot of these systems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can get thrown in and into a do-re-mi, which is a little more of a corporate level sort of system. Right. And it's wrought with all sorts of little traps. So you just kind of read the manual or talk to other operators and right. uh, sort out where the gotchas are and try not to do that. Yeah. So. And. And and it's hard because you're just not using, but but I think that I'm I'm not familiar with the Roland uh, P20D uh, for instant replays, um, but but we'll take a look at it because it sounds interesting. I mean, again, we have to find other ways to do things like this. Um, but today we're talking about the EBS, and that's really the. I mean, I don't know of a lot of other replay systems that, again, they're very capable. Um, and if but if you're looking for instant replay, it gets pretty hard. I know that VMix has has a system built into it. Um, there's a couple other systems that will do it, and it's just you know, of course, this is kind of the again we're kind of having a industrial scale conversation at the moment. Um, but but that's the that's the challenge there. Uh, next question. Talalik Lopez Waterman in Galistero, New Mexico. How much physical room does this system take up? Go ahead, Robert. Uh, well, you saw the picture of the uh, of the big server, so you need usually a good system will have two of those servers, so they can take up probably that much rack space. <laughs> so you may have maybe a third of a, a full standard rack. Yeah, we usually assume that with all the GAC that comes with it, I think, I mean, a lot of times when we rent them, they come in their own box, so we don't put them in the rack. But when we put them in a rack, we usually assume that we're going to, we carve out 24 spaces and a 48 space rack um, to just, just to know that the EVS has the room and the, of all the things that are necessary for it. Um, next question. Dave Troutman from Edmonton, Canada. I love the Ampex Ace. Used it a lot. I came from paper edits and edit decision list, which were great. Does an EVS store and recall EDLs? The code, Robert. It stores and recalls uh, timelines. And so we don't need the big list of time codes ins and outs, uh, even though it actually is, it's just basically another, the EDL is just another controller. So in our all clips area, when we make edits, it's actually making clips and they're just kind of generically named, but those clips are basically represented in the timeline. And for all intents and purposes really are just the timeline. This is just another version of a playlist and just with a nicer GUI. So, Next question. And it's Talalik Lopez-Waterman in Galistero, New Mexico. What sports are using EVES? Uh, I don't know what oh. sports aren't using them. Yeah, that's a good question. That That's probably um, people don't have a budget for EVS, but even though <laughs> I think they're even <laughs> right. triggering down to, to smaller college and school level 
So yeah, I I don't know a lot of. Uh, I know Pac-12 was using, the last time I went through Pac-12, they were using dream captures, but what they did, they didn't have the, you know, their, so there's, you know, with a lot of college stuff, there's multiple layers of um, production. So if you're doing, if you're at a, you know, if you're doing football, like, you know, there is, there's eight trucks or six trucks or 12 trucks or whatever that are going to park outside the stadium. They're going to run into it and, you know, there's going to be a truck of ABSs or whatever that, that's going to be there and there's a big budget and everything else. When you get to the what they, you know, when you get to the next level down, they can't put those trucks at every one of these. You know, at the rugby shows, at the at the um, you know the uh, field hockey and all the other things that occur. Um, but they are oftentimes required to deliver those. You know, um, it's Title Nine. You know, um, process. And so, so what they do is they, um, you know, what some of these networks have done is they'll ha- they'll take all of the. Um, They'll take all the all the games, and they have a little truck, this little uh, van that shows up, and it will connect. For most of the colleges, they can use Internet too, which is great. <laughs> like it's a great backbone that nobody else gets to use. So, but they can also use the switch and a couple other things to make that happen. And they'll flow all of the all the signals, all the camera signals. And for the smaller ones, it's usually five to eight cameras at most um, back to the central control, and that used to be in San Francisco. Um, and, um, and so they'll send it back to central control and then they have the playback there. They have sometimes the announcers there, the audio mix, the edit, everything is all done centrally. And they have, you know, I think that they had three or four of them so that they could have up to that many games running at the same time. Um, you know, and they can, and they can run them, but it all comes back to the same place. And the advantage of that, of course, is that you don't have to distribute all of that, all those resources, you know, all the resources come back in, you're, you're maximizing the use of the equipment, um, to make that all work, I know it's a, it's a different show, um, but but we're um, but I but just to explain like how a lot of the sports get done, and that's how they can afford to use you know higher end playback systems, is because they don't have to deliver them to every every event um, all the time. Is that you know that kind of Remy model, which I, I really feel like Pac twelve in many ways were were one of the big pioneers. Oh, they're gone now. I don't know if they're. I think they're kind of. I don't know if they're gone yet, but this might be the last season for Pac twelve. Um, but I think that they really were a, um, a, a a Remy innovator, you know, for a long time. I mean, they were way ahead of it of trying to figure out how to like. And this is dropping cost per show from, uh, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a copy to under ten grand. So it's it's a you know for for these kinds of things, it's it's an important kind of puzzle there. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. This might be a NFL films question, but back in the film days when they had a telecine. Uh, down in the basement, developing film and uh, using it for playback. How do they deal with that? Uh, because it was certainly a non-linear, not a non- non-linear system. Well, NFL Films was not. I remember they they talked about replay. I remember seeing. I, some, there's somewhere on YouTube they have it. Like this is the first replay. Like we're able to. Don't hang on. We're going to replay this video for you. Like you've like you've never seen this before live. <laughs> NFL Films, I, you know, comes out later that week, so I don't think they had to worry about playback of that. But it's. But the um, uh, but yeah, I remember there's some clip I think somewhere on YouTube that I just saw recently of them making a big deal about the fact that you know, hang on, we're gonna re- we're gonna play this back for you so you can see it again. Which is, and I do think that the power of the EBS and the power of the replay is part of why we have so many complaints about our referees. Is those poor referees get to see it once at real time, and we get to watch it in slow motion over and over and over again. Makes it really hard to make be a good referee. Uh, go ahead, Robert. Well, and to that point, that's also another part of EVS's uh, uh, business model is selling very specific systems for referee 
recall playback that they have to adhere to certain things to review yeah. a playback. Yeah, and, so it's I mean I think that I think that the one thing that, about it is, is that it really is very customized and I think the advantage you know, we were talking about like what are less expensive versions of this the hard part is is that EBS is so ubiquitous in the market that uh, it's they it's not just that they have a lot of market share it's that they're learning from that market share all the time you know like they're you know so they're they're constantly refining the system based on how it's being used and that gets into a really um, kind of a hard to hard to get out of that <laughs> that yeah and they keep expanding their reach in terms of what they do I mean they have a switcher and they they have a router system now and yeah. obviously everything you talk about is the, with switcher the Olympics. Working? Well, I don't know. I, okay. I mean, I've seen it. It looks pretty. <laughs> it, looks, it looks like it a looks, Ross. <laughs> yeah, it looks, it, looks, it looks really pretty. The first time I saw it, I was like, it's not quite, not quite knocking it out of the park yet. Um, but it was. But, but I, it, I think being tied to a router and other things and, and some pieces of automation is yeah. kind of what's making it powerful. And of course, I think we've touched in previous shows about how, how dominant EVS is at, at the Olympics oh, and yeah. how they can, you know, have a lot of, centers of EVS operators remotely to any, any well, sort and, of, uh, and that sport. changed a lot in COVID, right? I mean, that was one of the big things in, in, uh, the COVID changes that you have now have EVS operators doing this from their house. Yeah. And they're using the newer controller, the one in the middle the E the via, and instead of a, uh, old clunky controller in the back, it's a, um, a, you know, RJ 45, it's a network cable. No, so no, that what we, can didn't, be we didn't discuss is home. what, <laughs> what, what connector does the old one use? I think it was RS232, but it I, is a 232. I don't quote like, me. Yeah. I have to deal I, with that yeah. a lot. That's why I'm, cause the, here's the problem now, with the RS232. The cable only goes 15 feet. Right. So it, in the studio, we just plug it into the bench. It's got a place. So yeah. You know, we have other controllers that go into there, like a DNF or you know the, you know the other yeah. rudimentary player. It, it it has been the bane of our existence that the the that the it was two thirty two for that controller, and it and it only goes fifteen feet before the you know analog. It's an analog controller, um, and so IHSE makes these ones these uh, KV, you know they make a lot of KVMs. But they do fiber extenders. And so when we need a controller on one side of the building and the EVS on another side of the building, it typically, that's a 232 and you use an IHSE to, to connect it and it pops out as, as analog again on, you know, on the other side of the building. But it, it was like, it was probably four or five years of me struggling with that until someone brought that box in. And I was, it was magical. Yeah. <laughs> like, and even, like even more magical now that it's networked and that, that yeah. with, uh, it, and EVS is also introducing new products to have low latency monitors so that you can be remote yeah. with an LSM controller and low latency monitors and do do it, you know, work from home or yeah. remotely. So In, industrial version of Zoom. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, this is sort of like a uh, Chris Fenwick question. So I apologize in advance. Uh, in a sporting uh, situation where uh, the ref says one thing and the EVS says something else. How do they deal with that? I mean, do they kind of downgrade the uh, the EVS, or do they say, "Oh, we have a technical problem; we can't do the playback to compare it to what I think the ref given just up said. on that? They're 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 full in, just showing you that it's a bad call. Like I, I don't, I think that's the problem that the refs have is there was a point where we were protecting them. I don't, I don't know, Robert, if you have any input, but it seems like we've stopped doing that. I I think. I think people yelling back at the television kind of solved that problem. 
like I can see it. there are some some bad calls that uh, that I see when I don't get a playback. I feel like somebody made a decision like, oh, we're not going to show that one. That's just going to make people upset. Well, and you, you know, you've like, seen all, you've seen a game that though, if it's a bad call or a questionable call, they're playing it back over and over again, well, but, from, but, and then but, digging up all the different angles. But there, occasionally, I see one where it's an obviously a bad call, like, and and maybe they just don't have an angle on it. But it's I find it very odd. Like, oh, that was a bad call, and you can see it kind of glance by. Like that was that guy was just grabbing onto the dude, and they don't. They don't go back to it, you know, and, and it's a, um, uh, I, I have thought about, you know, because, you know, they hold every play, right? Defensive, offen- offensive holding, ho- holding is every, every play. So when they call it, the question is, why did you call it this time versus the other times? Because everybody's holding every play. Like, you know, and so, so that's the hard part about watching replays is that you can always catch them doing it in general. So um, anyway. Robert, thank you so much for for uh, coming on and talking about it. I was super excited to have you on. And I, you know, part of what I wanted to do is just make sure people knew that what it is, you know, and know, know how it works. Because I went through a, twenty years of being in the industry not knowing that it existed. <laughs> you know, so uh, anyway, thank, and, thanks so much. And now with AI, by the way. So what, now, what does it do? What does the AI do? The AI does is that they've been using it in sports now. So they have um, only certain machines that do super slow motion it's usually tied to a high-speed camera and a certain and you got to pay for a certain license on the evs to have the high high speed uh super slow-mo feature activated as well but that's only for so many cameras so what they'll do is they'll clip something off where they want a super slow motion slow motion make a clip send it to extra extra motion and they will make it make the frame in betweening with AI yeah. and then send it back to the operator within seconds. Wow. So basically any camera that they have can be turned into super slow motion yeah. with the AI feature. That's incredible. That's really cool. Um, thank you to the, to the, uh, to the, all the panelists for being on for the show for the first hour and the second hour. Thanks to the, to the producers asking all these great questions, keeping us going. Uh, we really appreciate your contribution. And thanks to the incredible team on the back end um, uh, uh, that makes this show happen every day, seven days, Seven days a week. <laughs> and if you're interested in, you know, there's a volunteer area at the, at the end of every email. If you're interested in being on that team and learning how, how we put this show together, uh, go ahead and uh, fill that out and we'll reach out to you. Uh, we, we're always looking for new people to, uh, to join our little crew to put this together. We traveled 42,000 miles and 68,000 kilometers, and that is 338 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. I didn't understand that the cue to go to to the to this was let's go jump into after hours until Monday, Monday when I didn't do it or Tuesday well, when I didn't do it. Then everyone was waiting for me. I was like, "What? Are we, why are people waiting?" We, we, we're, There's we're some old old HD beta machines for you. <sighs> we didn't get to all the photos. Ah, I do have like some legacy photos that are kind of fun. So. Uh, we'll have to find <laughs> another excuse to have you. Uh, have well, we might have to have a, a combination Jeff Keithley show because when one of the questions kind of referred to a lot of what Keith, Jeff does with yeah, yeah, yeah. pick his brain about his playback systems. We should have, there should be like a, we, we need to do a legacy show where we all just bring pictures of old things <laughs> that used you to can, happen. You can buy one of those digi beta decks for like 200 bucks now. I have, I have, I have them. They don't work. I have them. I'm going to put them in the set back here. So I'm working on it. I, 